This morning, I'm really excited about uh, kicking off our new sermon series, uh, The Upside Down Kingdom. And you may have, if you've been paying attention, I, I knew that was a year. As, as Paul's saying, we've been here a year, but it doesn't feel like a year. I still feel new. Um, I think COVID had some of that to do. I think time just has stopped working um, during COVID. But um, if you've been paying attention to kind of the, the ideas behind the sermons, we have spent a lot of time in the last year talking about the church, um, what churches should be doing, what does it mean to be a church, all those types of things. And believe me, that's where my, my passion is. I'm super excited about that. But I'm really excited today because we're going to jump into um, the Gospel of Mark for the next several weeks and look at the kingdom of God as revealed through the teachings and life of Jesus. And so we've been talking a lot about church. Now we're going to jump into the kingdom of God uh, as taught and instructed by Jesus. And uh, the title, Upside Down Kingdom, will make sense if you haven't already started connecting some dots there. But um, as we start out, I want to ask, have you ever changed jobs but stayed within maybe the same type of work? Right? Have you moved from one company doing a job to another company doing a job? Maybe you were a teacher at one school and you became a teacher at another school. Or like me, when I was in college, I started working at one warehouse and a little bit later I started working at another warehouse and we had forklifts and boxes and conveyor belts and trucks to load and stuff. But it was two completely different experiences because the priorities, the goals, the values of those two different organizations were radically different. And so the job, the work might actually even be the same work, but the, the culture was different. Right? Or maybe you've gone uh, from one church to another church, and it may even have been within the same denomination. Maybe you went from one Nazarene church to another Nazarene church, but um, it wasn't the same. It wasn't like you were um, going to one McDonald's to another McDonald's, but like, you know, because those are franchises that are meant to be exactly the same experience wherever you go. But you go from one church to another church, and the culture is radically different, even though you read the same Bible. Um, you know, the, the format's the same. You have a preacher, you have songs, you have a, a building that says church, but it's a completely different experience because the priorities, the goals, the values are different. The culture is different. And so values, priorities, and goals can shape the character and the culture of any organization. I think we've experienced that, uh, all of us, at some level or another. Um, and it can shape it in any different direction. Like it can be a good shaping, it can be a bad shaping, it could take you in a, in a wide spectrum of ways. Culture can be shaped in a variety of ways. And it can be shaped regardless of talent and resources available, right? Like have you ever been part of a team that should have done really well, but because the culture wasn't great, the priorities weren't working the way that they should, or the values were on the wrong thing? Like you have the most talented people on your group or on your team, but it didn't accomplish what it was supposed to. Or maybe you had all the resources in the world, but it just it wasn't working. Um, so culture uh, can, can do a lot. There's a, uh, and I don't remember who said it, but there's this idea that says that um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Have you ever heard that? If you've been around like the business world, they say this all the time. That, like You can have the best plan, you can have the best thing, but if the culture isn't supporting that, um, good luck, right? Um, well, the same can be said of kingdoms. Right? And kingdoms is a, is a concept that we're not super familiar with, especially like ancient kingdoms of the, of the Bible. Like we maybe are more used to kingdoms being something to do with a fairy tale, you know, Disney stories and the kingdom uh, you know, far away or something like that. But like we're not used to, we're, we think of more modern forms of government. We don't think of kings ruling the way that they did in the Bible all those many years ago. 
But the same can be said of kingdoms. Kingdoms that have different priorities, different goals, different values, have a different culture. Right? Living in, in ancient Rome was a lot different than living in ancient Assyria, living in ancient Israel. Right? Like, so the different kingdoms can have different cultures because of the priorities, values, and character of that kingdom. Now today we begin a series of sermons contrasting the familiar kingdoms, the familiar culture of the kingdoms of this world, earthly kingdoms, contrasting that with the upside-down kingdom of God. And we're going to explore, like I said a moment ago, the, what Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God, and it's going to feel upside-down. It's going to feel backwards, counterintuitive. It's going to feel paradoxical, sometimes nonsensical. Um, but in the end, I hope that what we see together is that it is the kingdoms of this world that are actually upside down, and the kingdom of God is the one true one that is rightly oriented, and that everything else should align with the kingdom of God, and that the kingdom of God is not truly the bizarre, broken one, backwards one, but all the other kingdoms are. Um, the title for this week's sermon is Where the Servants Are Great. The kingdom of God is a kingdom where the servants are great. Okay. Um, that already feels a little bit backwards, right? Those who serve others are the greatest. Um, we're going to be jumping in in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Um, as is going to be my new habit, um, I'm going to announce that the words will be on the screen. You can turn to your Bible, your Bible app, but also, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, in the rows of chairs, there are these. Take one, it is yours if you need it, right? Or you know somebody who needs a Bible, so... It's not just there for today's service, but get the word of God in people's hands. Okay. Um, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They, being the disciples and Jesus, left the place that passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching the disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days he will rise, but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Uh, Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Again, not just words on a page, although we are grateful uh, that we can have a Bible, we can uh, take our questions and our concerns and our curiosity and turn in the pages of scripture and access the teachings and your, the stories of your people readily um, without hindrance in a variety of ways. And so we are grateful for that. As a church, we, we depend on that as a tool for the ministry that you do in, a, in us and through us. But more importantly, we are grateful for your word that becomes flesh and dwells amongst us, that reveals truth to us as we live together in community. May this gathering, this service, um, glorify you, point us uh, to this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom uh, in which Jesus is king, um, so that we may be good citizens of the kingdom and others may come to know 
the good news that Jesus is Lord. We thank you and love you. Amen. So as we start this, not only this, this sermon, but specifically this sermon series, we're going to spend several weeks, um, I want to say it's 10, 10 weeks, talking about the kingdom of God. Um, as we start this series of 10 weeks, it's important for us to first understand what I am saying when I say kingdom, when I say kingdom of God. Um, when I say kingdom, you, you might come to different conclusions. You might be thinking about different things. You might be thinking, well, it means heaven, or it means this, it means that, whatever. And I want us to be all on the same page as we get started, because honestly, the kingdom of God concept is one that, that Jesus teaches on a lot. It's like the core of his teaching, um, but it's also core to the Christian faith. So it's kind of important that we get this right. This will help us tell the story well. Uh, the kingdom of God is not a place specifically that you go. Like, you're not going to find it on a map, right? Let's pull out your map. Oh, there it is. Here's the kingdom of God. There it is. Um, but rather, the kingdom of God is everything that is under the reign and the rule of God. The word kingdom in our Bible, um, the, the word behind that literally translates as reign or rule. Uh, and that may seem a little confusing, but think of the ancient world um, where you have kings of territories, right? So there's the king of this territory, here's the king of that territory, right? Um, and the, these kings ruled their territories, and these territories had boundaries, their borders. And these borders could be pretty fluid. They could, they could move frequently because um, wars could change these boundaries or borders, or treaties, agreements between nations, a third party could come. Like, so the borders were in flux, right? Um, so when a king would refer to his kingdom, he wasn't speaking about the lines on a map, because honestly, that wasn't the goal, to have a, lot, a bigger territory. Um, he was referring, the king would be referring to his ability to reign or to rule over a people, to shape that area the way that he wants it to be, according to his will, his desire, his goals. Um, if a king declares that, for example, all the cities or villages in his kingdom should pay a tax, an extra tax, maybe they're fundraising to build a palace or something, or, or raise an army or whatever, so all the cities and all the villages have to pay a tax. Or the king declares that each village or city has to provide a certain number of soldiers to fight in this king's army. Um, but what happens if some of these cities or villages don't do it, if they disobey? Right? Now, on a map, his territory might you know, include that city or that village, but he's not real thrilled about that city or that village right now, right? Because it's not following his... Kingdom, his, his kingship. He's, it's not under his authority. It's, it's not functioning the way that he wants it to function. He hasn't shaped that community. He hasn't brought it in line according to his values and his reign and his rule. So th these people of those cities, they live in that land, but that land is ruled by the king, but they aren't. They're not good citizens of that kingdom. The rule of that king that could, and, and if that happened, right, like this is purely hypothetical, but th this is what happened in the ancient world. If cities or villages would disobey, the king had a couple options how to respond. He could ignore it, which I can guarantee probably almost never happened. It was a direct, uh, you know, ignoring his, his command, his, his rule, and he probably wouldn't let that go unnoticed. So he could send messengers just as a friendly reminder, you know, we've been trying to reach you about your car warranty. We'll send the the, the messenger, the telemarketer, like, hey, just a reminder, we said raise an army, we said give these soldiers, pay these taxes, and you haven't, you know, 
Just a reminder, maybe they didn't know, maybe they thought, oh, I'm real far away in the kingdom, the king isn't paying attention to us. So just a, a messenger, which by the way, I, I mentioned a little bit about languages in the Bible. Um, the word messenger and the word angel in the Bible are the same word. So when you see God sending his angels, he's sending his messengers, if that helps tie into the, this whole kingdom of God concept. So he sends his messengers uh, to announce, by the way, just a reminder, you owe this tax or whatever. Um, he could uh, add additional burdens onto that city or that village. Like, we're going to stop sending support. We're going to cut off trade. Um, we're not going to allow other people to bring food or resources in. Or we're going to, uh, some of these cities, as the civilization advanced, would import water from places through, like, uh, aqueducts or aquifers. And, like, their city, would be, their city would be fed from water from outside of their city. So, a lot of times, King would just go cut off the water supply and... You know, a couple days go by without water, and they're looking a little more ready to do what the king tells them to do. So he could just add burdens to force compliance. Uh, sometimes he would send a governor, a representative, to rule right in the midst, right? Like, if you're not going to listen to a king that lives 500 miles away, you're going to listen to a governor or a regent of some sort that lives right in your middle, right in the middle, and like, he represents the king in your midst, um, or he could send an army to threaten them, show a force a little bit, like, hey, if you're not going to get on board, if you're not going to fall in line, just a reminder, we've got the army, and it's not going to turn out well for you, and try and bring them back in compliance. Or if he's just had enough of this city, enough of this village, he'll just send the army to wipe out the city or village. Like, you're not worth my time, you're not worth my trouble. If I don't do something with you, it looks like weakness, and so we're just going to deal with you, and you're done. And... Uh, the king was, would be responding, and, and obviously this is hypothetical, but um, would respond to the part of their territory that wasn't under their kingship, that wasn't falling in line with their authority. And so a king's kingdom is his reign, his shaping of the world according to his priorities, his values, his mission, right, and his will. So a king would have a territory, but he'd be working to bring everything in alignment under his, his values. A kingdom reflects, therefore, the values and the character of its king, right? A kingdom reflects the values and character of the one that's ruling it, right? In the same way, the whole world is God's, right? This is, as Christians, we affirm this, this, it's all God's territory, God's God of everything. Yet, at the same time, there are parts in the world, there are things in this world that are not shaped and functioning according to the will and desire of God. Like you go out in the world, you turn on the news, you turn on social media, you go to the store, you engage with the public in any which way, and you probably walk away going, things are not as they should be. Right? Have you had that thought come through your head lately? <laughs> I know I have. This is not what God intended for us. Right? So there's things in the world that all, while the whole world is God's, there's things in the world, there's cities or villages in this territory that haven't been brought under the authority, that haven't been shaped by the ruler. There are things that are shaped by values or goals or priorities of other kingdoms. There are people who don't live the way that God desires for his people to live. There are places in the world that don't reflect the values and the character of King Jesus. And that's what's happening. When we say Jesus is Lord, we, I mean, Lord's kind of the spiritualized word that the church uses, but it's the same word as king. Right, so when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying Jesus is King, and I mean it's been a long time since you know us Americans have had 
had a king to worry about. And in our story, kings are bad, right? All kings are bad because we, you know. But the Christians, the earliest Christians were saying King Jesus. That's what they were announcing. That's what they were declaring. Jesus is our king. Um, And so faith in Jesus is allegiance to King Jesus, a commitment to King Jesus, a submitting of our lives, a surrendering of our lives to this king, to the rule, this reign, the authority, the kingdom of King Jesus. It's letting Jesus shape the way we live as individuals, but also it's letting Jesus shape the way we live as believers in a community, how we relate to one another, right? That is all shaped by the character, teachings, commands of the king. And so at its core... I mean, a church can be a lot of things, but at its core, a church is a community of people organized and shaped by faith and allegiance to King Jesus, obedience to his teachings and to his commands, right? So when, when the world wants to know what is the kingdom of God looks like, it should be able to look at a church and say, this is what it looked like. A church is a community that is organized by the teachings and commands of King Jesus, And so while the rest of the world is out there waiting to be shaped, waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be restored, waiting to be organized into the image that God would have it to be, the church gets to experience that life right now. And so when we gather as Christians, we experience the kingdom of God in our midst because we are a community that is organized, that is ordered, that our values, our priorities, and goals are shaped by the king. King Jesus. So when we gather, we experience the kingdom of God in our midst, but when we scatter into the world, we carry that kingdom with us, but only to the extent in which God has shaped our hearts and our minds as, as we go, right? As long as it reflects his nature, we carry the kingdom with us. Now, there are reasons why the world is not shaped. There's reasons why when you look out into the world and go, oh, God's not, that's not how God would have that to be, and, that's not, and that person, that's not what God says, and that's not what we should be doing. There's a reason why things are that way. There's multiple reasons. Um, one of which just may be simply that they don't know King Jesus is king, or they don't know his teachings and his commands. You know, Paul says, how can they obey if they haven't heard? And so the the solution to that problem is messengers. We need people to go out and declare boldly, Jesus is king, here's his teachings, here's his commands. You can experience a new life, a new kingdom, but you got to meet the king first. Let me explain to you who this king is and how he works. And, And this is at the core what evangelism is. It's announcing good news. It's good newsing people. Um, announcing Jesus is king. And so it's important for us as a church to, to realize that the gospel is not just a formula, a set of steps to get into heaven when you die, but it's, it's an announcement that Jesus is king. And it's an invitation to follow him and follow his teachings and his commands. Uh, another reason why we might look out in the world and see areas in the territory that haven't been shaped by King Jesus is because they are deeply shaped by another king or another kingdom. And some of those areas might actually be trying to follow King Jesus. Paul uh, tells us that sometimes we, we, we do things that we don't want to do. So as Christians, we might even be desiring to follow King Jesus, but find ourselves unable to, whether it be our nature or we just didn't know better. Like We, we stumble into the wrong kingdoms. right? So 
while we might be trying to follow King Jesus, we might end up following the wrong king from time to time. And honestly, this is the hope. If you read the Old Testament, uh, this is the messianic hope, the hope of the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. They were hoping for God's king to come. And we told the story that not only is uh, you know, like Jesus was supposed to come as the Messiah to, to set them free of the rule of other kingdoms, right? Like this was the hope of the Messiah. Free us from exile. Free us from Rome. Free us from these other countries that always conquer us. Free us from Egypt when we were slaves, right? The Messianic hope was not only to free them from the kingdom that ruled them, but to give them a king that would lead them into true righteousness, into all truth, into the ways of God. And so the goal of the messianic hope wasn't freedom for the sake of just being able to do whatever you want, but it was be free from the Romans, for example, so that we could follow God correctly. The people couldn't do it on their own, and they were constantly ruled and influenced by other kingdoms and other kings. And this is what you read through the Old Testament time and time again. God has called his people, and they kind of wandered off after somebody else. They worshipped other gods. They wanted to be like other nations. They made deals with other countries that they shouldn't be making deals with because those kingdoms look more appealing than the kingdom of God. Or they didn't know what the real kingdom of God was. You read in the Old Testament a lot of confusion about who God is. So they may be people that don't know, or there may be people that do know about the kingdom, but it's just too hard to follow well, follow correctly. But the third way when you look out in the world and say that's not how God wants it to be it could just be straight up open rebellion against the king right simply refusing to do what king Jesus commends and teaches us to do because people's allegiance lies with other kingdoms and other kings people who believe that other rulers have a better way people that refuse to let go of the kingdoms of this world and see the rulers of those kingdoms as the real rulers Right, and it's because they provide. Uh, I mean, people are just trying to have their needs met. They're trying to be safe. They're trying to be comfortable. They want to live a good life, and so they look at the the kingdoms of this world and say, "That one looks like it gives me a chance to be safe. That one looks like it might be give me a chance to be comfortable." And so these other kingdoms might be more preferable, or maybe they need their needs better. But they hear the words of Jesus, and they just say, "Yeah, that's not going to work for me." And so we find places where people feel better about following a warrior king than following a shepherd king. And it's been that way for a long time. So if you're thinking I'm I'm trying to pick on something today, I'm really not. This has been the story that goes back in ancient times. King David was ignored and mocked because he was a shepherd. And that happened multiple times. When, when Samuel came uh, to anoint the next king and Jesse lined up all his sons, he didn't line up all his sons. <laughs> they left David out in, the, flock, out in the, the pasture with the sheep because who would want a shepherd as king? Like, that's not the guy that's going to do it. They didn't even call him for the lineup. And the same kind of story happened again when, when Israel was fighting the Philistines and, and the, the army was afraid to fight Goliath. And they were calling on all the great warriors and all the great soldiers, and nobody could, could defeat Goliath or was willing to battle. And, and David said, well, I'll do it, and they just laughed. What's a shepherd boy going to do against this great military warrior, this great might, this power that stands right in front of us? A shepherd is not going to be able to stand before Goliath. 
<laughs> they didn't want a shepherd. They needed a warrior. That story continues on, and you can see that, that theme repeating over and over again in the Old Testament, but jumping to, to the time of Jesus, you think Palm Sunday, they celebrated him coming into the city. This is our Messiah. This is the anointed one. This is the one that God has sent us, but he showed up on a donkey, not on a stallion. He didn't show up ready to lead an army into war. He showed up ready to lead sinners into righteousness, to lead lost people into green pastures. And they said, yeah, no thanks. Uh, crucify them. We'll take somebody else. Next, please. They wanted an army. They wanted a general to fight enemies rather than a, a, a shepherd to lead God's flock to green pastures into righteous living. And Christians today still have the tendency to follow leaders that look more like the world than they look like Jesus. It's, it's still a temptation for us today. The kings of this world appeal to us. They invite us to reject the kingdom of God as revealed in King Jesus. We're tempted to choose a king and join that team that gives us the best chance at winning, at surviving, at getting what we need or what we want. And that's nothing new. Like I said, that's pretty much the story of Israel in the Old Testament. The scripture for today was Mark chapter 9, but if you, if you jump back to chapter 8, we're not going to read through it, but if, if you want the reference, this is all happening in Mark chapter 8. So just the chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples, he said, I'm going to die. He says that in chapter 9 as well, but he said it just prior in chapter 8. He's apparently saying it a lot. Um, but right before he says that, Peter makes this bold declaration, this amazing statement. He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. This great revelation, this great truth from God, Peter utters those words, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to die. And Peter immediately says, uh, no, you're not. Uh, you can't be king if you're dead. And it's this weird moment. Like, it's fun to pick on Peter at times because he kind of sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. But what you see in chapter 8 is Peter wrestling with the, the nature of this kingdom of God, this, wrestling with this nature of the, this king this upside-down kingdom. Like, he's not getting it because it doesn't make sense. The disciples, some of them thought that Jesus was going to take over the kingdom of this world. They thought he was going to kick out the Romans and install himself as emperor, ruler of the kingdoms of this world and wield the power of the kingdoms of this world upon the values and the priorities and the goals of the kingdom of this world. They thought that's what Jesus' mission was. They thought that's what he was up to. But Jesus was here to announce a completely different kingdom. The kingdom of God is not the kingdom of this world. And, and, and the theme for this whole sermon series is going to be this. Jesus rules God's kingdom in a way that is radically different than earthly kings rule earthly kingdoms. And, and, and church, this is critical for us as we, we seek to understand Jesus' teachings and commands about the kingdom of God for the next several weeks. He, he rules his kingdom differently than, than we would. He wields power differently than the kings of this world wield their power. And so then again in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this to his disciples as if telling them that he was going to die wasn't enough. He says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will, and for the gospel will save it. So not only is this king going to go lay down his life, which is still keeps the mind spinning, how's that going to work, right? How does a dead king lead anything? Not only is he going to lay down his life, but those who pledge their allegiance, their trust, their faith in King Jesus, they're going to have to lay down their lives as well. And so if the disciples joined Team Jesus because they thought they were going to win, if they joined King Jesus because they thought that it was going to put them in charge of the kingdoms of this world, Jesus informs them in this moment that he's got some news for them. It's going to end up a little bit differently than what you expected. The cross that Jesus said they must take up is not the decorative cross that we put on churches, that we wear as jewelry, that we put on our car, bumper stickers. It wasn't a decorative thing. It wasn't triumphant. It wasn't a celebration of victory in the way that we understand Christian victory today. The cross that Jesus was telling his disciples to pick up was one that symbolized suffering. It was humiliating. It was an embarrassing, reputation-destroying form of punishment used by the most powerful government in the world, most powerful empire in the world would use this cross to humiliate, to decimate, to destroy, to uh, embarrass not only the one on the cross, but all those associated with them. A few verses later in Mark chapter 8, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, if people are ashamed of me, then I'll be ashamed of them when I come again. Well, why would people be ashamed of Jesus? Because of the cross. Holy Week, Peter denies knowing Jesus. They come, the people come to Peter, oh, you, you know that Jesus guy. Nope, don't know him. Three times he denies knowing Jesus. I mean, sure, he's afraid, but he's also ashamed. He doesn't want to be associated with this one who's hanging on the cross that's being humiliated. The disciples that week scatter and hide. If status and power in a society could be measured on a scale of one to a hundred, one being like no, no status, no power, no reputation, and a hundred being the highest, all the status, all the power, all the whatever, wealth and everything. If you had the scale 1 to 100, the cross would be at negative 5. Like, it, it, it wouldn't even register. It was totally decimating of status and reputation. Picking up your cross meant absolute rejection of the values of the kingdom of this world. To, to voluntarily embrace the suffering and the humiliation of the cross was what Jesus was inviting his disciples to do. It was reject the goals, the values, the priorities of the kingdoms of this world. Back in chapter 9 of Mark, for our scripture for today, Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to die. Verse 32 says that they did not understand what he was saying, but instead of asking, uh, they were too afraid. They, did, they didn't understand it, so they weren't going to ask because they were afraid to ask. So instead of asking Jesus to explain it, they argued um, about who was the greatest. Who was in their group, had the most status, who had the place of honor, who had the power and the influence in their little community formed around Jesus. 
You want to start rating each other. And, and honestly, the, the scriptures doesn't say this specifically, but the more I, time I spend reading this story, the more I have to wonder if they heard Jesus say, I'm going to die. And they started arguing about who was going to lead when he was gone. Now, it doesn't specifically say that, but they were embarrassed and ashamed and refused to talk to Jesus about what they were arguing about. And so maybe they heard him say, I'm going to die, and they were arguing of who was going to lead next. I hope that's not the case, because it would really paint a picture of the disciples the way that I don't want to see them. But the more I read it, the more I come to that conclusion. Either way, they weren't tracking with Jesus. Verse 35, we, we continue on in Mark chapter 9. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus sat down in a house and called the disciples. Sitting down in Jesus' day was a posture of authority. That's how you did your teaching. So you'll, you'll see images, paintings, and stuff of Jesus sitting and his crowds gathered around him. Like Sitting was the posture of authority. Um, and so this is the teaching moment in the scripture. And he didn't directly mention the kingdom of God. He didn't come out and say, the kingdom of God is like this. He does that a lot, but he didn't in this place. But he, he was teaching them about the ethics of the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, the way that the, the kingdom uh, shaped the world according to God's will and what that would look like. What it would look like if the world was ordered and organized and functioned the way that God wanted it to function. He says, when the world functions the way that God wants it to function. When the world is ordered according to the will and desire of, of God in his kingdom, those who want to be first must be last. In God's kingdom, those who are celebrated, given honor, those who are recognized as uh, uh, are great, those who are selflessly serve others, right? Those who are celebrated, those who are given honor, those are the ones that, that, that receive recognition are the ones that are serving other people. From a young age, we are taught that we are all supposed to climb a ladder to the top of our society. That regardless where you, where you start, the, goal, the game's the same. Move up. Get better. Have more. Status, success, influence, power, whatever. Comfort. Sometimes we can think that Jesus is the helper or a shortcut on that ladder to the top. The higher we move up the ladder, the better we are. And obviously Jesus wants us to have things and, and be good and, and all that. So he's going to help us move up the ladder. Or maybe he'll push us up and we skip a few steps or something. Some people are born near the top. Some people are born a little bit lower. And through work and education and some good fortune sometimes or the help of others, they can move their way up this ladder towards the top. And there are some groups in Christianity, and it's 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 becoming more and more prevalent as time goes by, but there's some groups in Christianity that have the tendency to teach about Jesus as one who helps us climb up the ladder. He uses his power to move us up status-wise in society, or even give us a shortcut to the top. And all it's going to take is for you to commit to send $100 to this TV preacher once a month, and you'll be receiving your best life. And right, Jesus wants you to have it all, and he's going to help you get there. These, these groups of Christians, this, these preachers of, of prosperity, tell of a Jesus who wants you to be the greatest in the kingdom of this world. As if Jesus has the values and the goals and the priorities of the kingdoms of this world. But King Jesus of the Bible is not that Jesus. If you read the scriptures, that's not the Jesus we see on those pages. 
We see a Jesus that declares that moving up the ladder, moving up the rungs of the world's kingdom is actually moving down the rungs of the ladder in the kingdom of God. To move up in God's kingdom, to be the greatest, to be honored and celebrated in God's kingdom, you have to move down the ladder in the world's kingdoms. You have to be the servant of all. You have to be the lowest in the kingdom of this world, and that's what makes you great in God's kingdom. Jesus is not a shortcut to the top of the kingdoms of this world, but he is king of a radically different kingdom. It's a radically different kingdom that has different values, different priorities, different goals, and to know what those values, priorities, and goals are, we have to hear the king speak. We have to listen to his teaching and his commands. We have to acknowledge that they're different than what the other kings of this world are saying. That the values, priorities, and goals of the kingdom of God are different than the values, priorities, and goals in the kingdoms of this world. Again, Jesus rules God's kingdom in a way that is radically different than earthly kings rule their kingdoms. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be listening to King Jesus talk about this upside-down kingdom. We're going to identify the priorities, the values, the goals of that kingdom. We're going to listen carefully each week as Jesus declares and teaches and, and, and commands us to live in that kingdom. We're going to ask, what should I know about this kingdom of God? We're also going to ask, what should I be doing in this kingdom of God? Now, for sure, in case there's any mistake, we didn't earn our place in this kingdom. It's not merit. It's not worthiness. It's not status that got us into this kingdom of God. Our invitation in is, is completely a gift of grace from God, right? We did not earn it. We didn't merit. We never could earn our way into the kingdom of God. It's all grace. But now that we have received that invitation, now that we are free from the world's kingdoms, it would be a tragedy to continue living as if we were following other kings, would it not? This week, King Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is a place where servants are great. Those who choose to put others before them are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Those who, who desire to seek and to serve are the ones that are celebrated in the kingdom. So we've got this paradox going on here, this upside-down kingdom structure. In order to be great in the kingdom of God, you must humble yourself. In order to be honored, lifted up, celebrated in the kingdom of God, you've got to put other people first. You can't use, abuse, manipulate, network your way to the top in the kingdom of God If you want to be great in the eyes of God, you have to love and care for others. Those who shout, me first, who care only about themselves, who demand that others serve them, they might find themselves getting ahead in the kingdoms of this world. And that might be discouraging for you as a Christian. You might look out into the world and see uh, aggressive, mean-spirited, unforgiving, unkind people getting ahead. Right? Nice guys finish last. It might look like they're getting ahead in the kingdoms of this world, but the more that they do and go along those lines, the farther they get away from the kingdom of God. So the invitation for today, let us hear the words of Jesus and let them shape our hearts and our minds. May our thoughts and our words be ordered and shaped by God himself. May the reign and rule of God extend so far that it it dwells inside of us in our hearts and in our minds, in our 
actions and our words. May the values, the priorities, and the goals of this kingdom guide us. Don't ask, what can I get? Don't ask, who can meet my needs? But rather ask, what can I give? Who can I serve? You may have noticed, but the world's gone a little bit crazy the last year, year and a half. It seems like society's a little bit more demanding, a little bit more critical, more combative, more aggressive, less patient, less gracious, maybe even a little bit more selfish. The church is called to be something else. Christians are called to live differently. So we start by asking, what can I give? Who can I serve? Don't be demanding, don't be aggressive, don't be critical, but rather be gracious, encouraging, and generous. Why should we seek to humble ourselves and serve others? Like, what's the motivation behind this? Well, I'll give you two. One, because if Jesus is our Lord, if Jesus is our King, uh, we should do what he says. (laughs) Pretty straightforward. If he's our Lord, our King, you, you do what your King says. Right? If we call ourselves Christians but don't obey the teachings of Jesus, don't obey the commands of Jesus, then we might be fans of Jesus. We might like to be on Team Jesus. Rah, rah, go, Jesus, go. But we aren't citizens living in the kingdom the way that Jesus would have us to. So if Jesus is our king, we should follow him. But secondly, we should live this way. We should humble ourselves and serve others because that is the way to shalom. That's the biblical word for peace for wholeness, for well-being, for life-giving, uh, life-transforming way of relating to the world. So not only does Jesus tell us to do it, but he, he's the shepherd pointing us to green pastures through these teachings. He's not asking what he can get from us, but he's asking how he can help us, and it's getting us to a place that is abundant in life. Jesus is this good shepherd who leads his flock to green pastures and teaches us this way of abundant, never-ending, eternal life. To ignore the teachings and commands of Jesus is to continue to choose alternative paths. Right? And those alternative paths might be appealing at first, at some level. These other ways, they're tempting. That's why it's so hard. Why Jesus says the the way to life is narrow. (laughs) The way to death is is broad. Like it, it's tempting. A lot of people go down the wrong paths. They appeal to us at some level, but they will ultimately leave us broken, disappointed, and shame in our sin. I'm going to pray and close this time of uh, service and invite the worship team to come um, as we reflect and uh, meditate on this upside-down kingdom for a few minutes more. Uh, Pray with me, if you will.